This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 34. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? This has been the reading of God's Word. Y'all may be seated. Well, you could ask my wife. I'm not a big jewelry guy. Probably should be more, but you could, that we were uh, on vacation, on an actual, on a trip for a conference a couple weeks ago, and we walked by a store, and I think it was Tiffany's, and she's like, uh, hey, don't you want to go in there and let's take a look? And I'm like, I, w- I mean, I, number one, that's out of our price range, just to be clear. But also, like, I would have no idea what I was doing in that store. Uh, if you were to show me a, a, a diamond ring, a real diamond ring, and a good fake, I doubt I'd be able to tell the difference between the two. But I would think that if you brought in, like, a really valuable piece of jewelry, like a really, really elaborate valuable piece of jewelry studded with diamonds and gold and whatever rubies and emer- like whatever like I bet if you, you held it up in the light and it was kind of dazzling to our eyes I bet even I would say wow that's something if an NBA player walked in here today whether you're a sports fan or not and he decided to shoot a couple of jumpers in here when we're done and we're tearing up uh, even if you're not a sports fan even if you don't know sports, I bet if you watched a man of that size and that ability shoot some jumpers, you would say, whoa, that's something different. I got a chance to play uh, pool basketball, Dale and JD and Landon and myself with David Duran a few weeks ago. (laughs) David Duran is a true athlete and I'm not. And it was three versus two and he still kind of dominated us, in, even, with, even in the water. He is a different kind of person, right? If a, if a world-class cellist came in here today and brought her cello in front and began to play Bach, something from Bach on it, even if you don't know music, and I don't, I bet you would say, now that's something special. And if you know music or if you know sports, your appreciation of that NBA player or that cellist would even be raised even higher. Uh, There's a certain weight, a certain gravity to things like that, isn't it? Even if you don't know music, you walk by and you hear that and you're like, that's something special. There's a certain weight, a certain gravity things like that have it. And that's a bit of a picture of what the Bible means when it uses the word glory. What it's talking about when it uses the word glory is it means a 
self-evident, self-proving weight of beauty or excellence. And this passage that we're in today that was just read for us, this passage, in this passage, Jesus is talking about glory. He's talking about that kind of weight. He's talking about the weight or beauty or excellence of God. And he's saying that he's going to decisively show what the glory or beauty or weight of the excellence of God is. See, he's saying something revolutionary here, and it's utterly unique. There's no other claim like it, no political leader, no religious leader, no one has ever made this kind of claim before. Now, Jesus has already said before this moment, he's already said that he and God are one. In fact, he describes a relationship so close and so intimate that he calls God, the holy, almighty, one creator God, he calls God Father. And he said that he, Jesus said he is the Messiah or the promised Savior who has come to save mankind. And he's performed many miracles, incredible miracles, water into wine, healing lepers, multiplying bread and fish, raising the dead. He's done amazing miracles that he describes as signs or big things that are pointed to say, this is who I am. And if all that is true, just even if all that is true, then we owe it to Jesus to examine this man. We owe it to ourselves to examine this man. I mean, if Jesus was God and he was sent by God, by the Father, on a mission to the world to save us, then it's only logical. It's only logical that we would give serious time to listen and to study him. That is earth-shattering kind of news, but it gets even more serious. Here's the revolutionary claim that Jesus is making here in this passage. Jesus is saying that he's about to do something that will bring even greater glory, remember that weight, bring even greater glory to the Father, that what he's going to do is going to judge and overthrow who he calls the ruler of this world, that it will exalt himself or lift him up. And he's saying that what he will do will draw people from all over the world back to God. And here's how he says he's going to do it. He's going to die. Not great military exploits, not going to build a great empire. He's not going to pioneer any technological advancements. He's not going to defeat political opponents. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What he's talking about is the, his torturous, bloody death on a cross. He's saying, I know exactly what is coming. I know exactly what I'm doing. It's the only way to glorify, wait, the only way to glorify the Father and to save mankind. And if what what he is saying is true, then that means that his death on the cross isn't just the most important event in the history of the world. It means it's the central thing, the weightiest thing in the history of the known universe. God has become human to die and to save humans. 
That's what he's saying. And he's saying that by doing so, he's going to show the beauty or the excellence of God. That's more than just revolutionary. It's what Paul called the mystery that has been hidden throughout ages and generations. Now, we don't have time this morning to plunge the depths of that mystery. It's going to continue to cause us to wonder throughout all eternity. Angels and creatures that we can't imagine that we just read about are singing of it right now. And they'll be joined by countless redeemed souls who are saved by that mystery. Libraries of books have been written about it. Literally millions of sermons have been preached about it. Untold numbers of Bible studies and small groups and conversations of gatherings in homes and in coffee shops and hidden basements and in the open air under a tree have all centered on this one mystery. And here's the thing, the wonder of that mystery still continues. Many of those people that have been part of those conversations or those sermons or read those books have put those books down or left those sermons and conversations with a smile on their face and a song on their lips. And they, the, even though they left there and faced torture and sacrifice, yet they still continue to sing. They had their homes taken. They lost their comfort. They left willingly their comfort and security to take the message to others who've not yet heard it. They've crossed lines to those who were previously considered enemies to share the mystery. That's what this mystery is. It's not simply the most important event in history. It is the marvel of eternity. For here lies the glory of God, and it's dazzling. And this morning, with the time that we have left, I simply want to hold it up to you and do my best to give you a glimpse of the glory that's found there in this mystery and pray that the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see the dazzling beauty of the terrible death of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about here. There could be no question. He said this, starting in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Dale mentioned last week that when Jesus talks about the the term hour, he's talking about the divinely appointed time for Christ's death. Jesus has been moving towards this moment. He's been talking about it and he's been predicting it, but now his verbus has changed. His public ministry is over and it's time to fulfill the purpose for which he came. And that is, he must die. It's the only way, he says, to glorify the Father and save humankind. But here we see something really incredible. Did you notice that first phrase? Now is my soul troubled. When he says trouble, that word means to be repulsed by something. It means to be horrified, to be in great anxiety or agitation. Jesus facing the moment of his death the purpose for which he came, which he says is going to glorify the Father, yet he says he's troubled in his soul. He's horrified. He's repulsed by this idea. And he's troubled, repulsed, horrified for two great reasons. First of all, because death is repulsive. 
One of the books my daughter and I, my four-year-old, are, are reading right now uh, before we go to bed. She's like, hey, where are we going to read tonight? She picks out a book, and sometimes it's Curious George, and sometimes it's this uh, book about the, the love of God. And when we get to the page about the cross, there's a picture, beautifully illustrated picture of Jesus on the cross. And when we get to that page, she stares at it intently. And you could tell, like, she's thinking hard. She actually gets her face right up to it to, to look at it. She wants to examine it all. She's thinking. And then she'll ask me questions about Jesus or the cross or death. But two nights ago, we were reading that book, and, and she asked me several questions which were really difficult to explain to a four-year-old before bed. And when I tried to explain it to her, she said, I don't understand dying. That's a hard truth to communicate to a child, isn't it? Death. And it's hard because we sense that that's not the way it's supposed to be. We are hardwired for life. We are hardwired to want to live. And yet, death is universal to all people. Birth and death are the two things that we share in common. Me and that nameless NBA player I already mentioned, we don't have a lot in common, except that he was born and I was born and he will die and I'll die. We all share that in common. But death isn't original to us. Life is. And yet, even though that's true, death hangs over, maybe because that's true, death hangs over all of us. It threatens us. It's come to be the unescapable inheritance of every son and daughter of Adam and Eve. There's nothing that's more threatening. There's also nothing that we share more common. It is all of us our common enemy. And even though it surrounds us, even though it's common to all of us, yet we're repulsed and held in horror by it, aren't we? And Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, as he's looking forward to his impending death, he's filled with repulsion and anxiety as well. Hey, God became man and face death, the thing that hangs over your head and my head. He faced it and experienced it. There's nothing that you have experienced, there's nothing that you fear, there's nothing that you have gone through or will grow through that he has not understood because he had flesh and blood. He had to eat, he had to sleep, and here at this moment, beyond our imagination to understand how it worked, he faced death. And he was repulsed by the idea. But he wasn't just repulsed by the idea of this death. His death was extra repulsive. What Jesus was looking at wasn't at the dark unknown like you and I look at in death. He wasn't afraid of his life ending. Because God in his Godness can't die. But he was repulsed by what his death meant. He was to bear the weight 
of the sin of the world upon him. He was to be the recipient of the full wrath of the Father upon our guilt. He was to be, in ways that we can't quite comprehend, the eternal Son of God was to be forsaken by the Father. And that filled him with horror and dread. What a Savior. What a Savior. Who would stand in that moment facing a sense that you and I can't wrap our heads and arms around, the eternal Son of God who had never not enjoyed perfect fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was facing in the confines of a human flesh in ways, again, that we cannot fully comprehend or understand. He was facing death and to be forsaken by the Father and have the Father pour his wrath upon the whole guilt of the whole world for all time in that moment upon him, upon the tree that he would be nailed to. What a savior. He isn't like some superhero that can't relate to our weakness and to our fear. He experienced them and even greater, to even greater extents. Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestles with the idea, will you, will I ask you, Father, will you save me from this hour? And he says, no. I came to this hour for this purpose. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, or maybe this morning you're here and you're just considering the claims of Christianity. He's, you wouldn't say he's my savior. He's just wanting to know more about this Jesus guy. Jesus Christ faced death and took the guilt of the world. And he did so willingly, even though part of him was saying, I don't want to do this. He persevered for the glory of God for our good. And the claim that Jesus is making is that he will face death, and not only will he face death, but he will conquer death. And he says that by doing so, he's going to glorify the Father. Now, we said at the beginning that glory means weight or gravity. It's a, I said it's a self-evident or self-proving excellence or beauty. Nobody has to tell you if the NBA player is in here, like, that guy's good at basketball. It is self-evident. Nobody has to tell you Margo is good at singing. It's self-evident. It's self-proving. I hope you're starting to see it already. But what is it that would make the death of Jesus on a cross something glorious? What would make it a thing of weighty beauty and excellence? A man being killed, nailed to a tree. What would make it a thing worthy to be praised or worshipped? In fact, if Jesus is correct here, his death is actually the weightiest thing in the world. Now maybe you have heard the story, but it's not weighty to you. Or maybe you believe the story, but it's not that weighty to you. 
What I want to say is, if that's true, then maybe you've missed something. How is the Father glorified in the death of Jesus? The first way, and I can't tell you every way, just here's a few ways. The first way that God is glorified in the death of Jesus is in the demonstration of justice for sin. See, you have had wrong things done to you. You've seen people commit evil things to other people. Some of you have been recipients of people doing evil things to you, things that are no excuse for. And you know, somewhere in your soul, somewhere inside you, you say, there has to be justice done for that. Well, the Bible says, and the truth that history has proven over and over again, that that is not just those people out there who've done those things, but it's me as well. And it's you as well. We have all done wrong things. And not only have we done wrong things to other people, but because God is the one glorious creator God who is deserving of all praise and glory, the weightiest thing in all eternity, though he is worthy of all praise and glory, we have decided that we want to rule and reign in our own lives. And that is hideous before such a good God. And that sin, that's what sin is. That sin, that rebellion, that wrong, there has to be justice done. There has to be payment made for the wrongs that all of us have done. And what the cross shows us, the way the Father is glorified in the death of Jesus, as Jesus said, I'll take it. The wrong you've done, the wrong he's done, the wrong she's done, I'll take it. Put it on me. My heart recoils against it. I'm repulsed by it. I'm horrified at the thought. I don't want to be forsaken by the Father, but yet I'll take it, Lord. Father, I'll take it. Pour it out upon me. For only God can receive the wrath of God and still survive and live. And Jesus said, I will be the one. Father, I will be the one, I will stand in the gap and take what they deserve to have come to them because we love them. The Father is glorified in the demonstration of justice for sin and he's glorified in the demonstration of mercy over judgment. That's the beauty, the weight, the glory of God. That he says yes, You've done wrong. Yes, you are rebellious. Yes, you have run from me. Yes, you have mocked me. You have mocked my gospel. You've mocked my people. You've made fun of church. You've made fun of my, my people. You've made fun of my things. you made fun of my ways. You've mocked Jesus. You've, you've used his name as a funny cuss word to throw in here and there. You've used my name to use it lightly as if I don't care and I, if I'm non-existent. You, you say that you don't believe that I am here. Ah, but mercy. I will pour out mercy upon you. And the only way I can do that is to pour the wrath that you deserve, the judgment that you deserve upon my son. And if, when I do that, you'll see mercy in me, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
What a beautiful God. You begin to see the weight of his glory, the beauty of his character, the loveliness of his nature, that justice would be paid out, but yet he would say mercy over judgment for you. Do you see how, how crazy it is, how unimaginable it is that we would look around and not see the mercy of Christ over judgment towards us? Do you see the, the sheer insanity that you would have to live life without recognizing the mercy of God triumphing over judgment that you deserve. To say, oh no, I'll still live my life the way I want it. I'll still go my own direction. I'll, I'll still pretend that you're not there. The Father's glorified in just, justice for sin and mercy over judgment and he's glorified in the demonstration of God's love to rebellious sinners. See, here's the gospel. We say this a lot here, but the gospel is, if I could put it in a nutshell, Tim Keller used to say this. I don't think he originated, but I'll give him credit. That you are far worse off than you ever thought you were. You are far worse off than you ever thought that you were. Just as bad a person that you think that you might be, you're worse off than that. All the wrong things that you are aware that you've done and the guilt that hangs over your head, there's more things than that. The amount of rebellion that you think that you have committed against God, there's more than that. But yet, the other side of the gospel is, but yet, but yet in Christ. That should be the sweetest phrase that you know. But yet in Christ. You are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. Don't you? I know this is true of you. No matter how tough you may act, no matter how independent you may act, don't you long for somebody to love you unconditionally for exactly who you are? And aren't you afraid to show even those who are closest to you exactly who you are and all the thoughts that you have and all the things that you've done in private and secret away from them? Aren't you afraid that you'll, you'll be found out? And you know they will not, they cannot love me if they knew. You're thinking about some of them right now. And that's probably true. Some of you have probably done things that even thought things I have that if the closest people to me knew them, they, how could they love me still? But yet in Christ, you are far more loved. He knew all of it. I want you to hear that this morning. He knew all of it. He heard every thought. He saw every secret deed. And he said, still I love her. Still I love him. And I love them so much, I will go to the cross. Even though it repulses me, even though it horrifies me, I will go to the cross for them. God is glorified 
and the love of God for rebellious sinners. I don't know how, I didn't see this until a few years ago. I've read the Bible, I don't know how many times I've read the Bible through, but I ran, started seeing like, it's, it's this like, Christ, God loves us in this way, he died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the good ones. He didn't die for those that he simply knew would come to him. He said he died for the ungodly. He died for you. And you know why? In love, he predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. God is glorified in the death of Christ and the justification of the ungodly. That he would say, hey, I don't think he talks like this, but just imagine he's, he's in heaven. He's looking at all these angels that have eyes all around and wings and crazy things. And he's sitting all around the angels and the myriads and that tens of thousands of 10,000. And they're looking down at the earth and it looks like, hey man, uh, God, I know that you're perfect, but it looks like you kind of botched this thing. It's kind of going sideways down here on you. Do you see how they're, how they're going down there? You see what they're doing? And he's like, hey, trust me. I got a plan that's going to show you something that you've not yet seen. How could we, how could there be no more that you have, that we haven't seen? We, we've been with you for eternity. No, no, no. Watch this. I'm going to justify the ungodly. I'm going to take the ungodly those that have been wrong, those that have done wrong, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something in such a way that's going to glorify my goodness because I'm going to cover them with righteousness, with my own righteousness. I'm going to take my robe and put it around them. I'm going to take my ring and put it upon them. And I, hey, watch this, guys. I'm going to call them sons and daughters and adopt them into the family. And they will have, hey, they will have the same standing with me as the Son, Jesus Christ, does. The eternal Son of God. And just to blow your minds a little bit more, I'm going to take them who were formerly innocent and are now marred by sin, and I'm going to blow in them again, and I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within them. And I will not only be with them, I will be in them. I will be their God they will be my people, they will be my children, and through all eternity, we're gonna celebrate my goodness. God glorified. He's glorified in the obedience of his son unto death, who says the will of the Father is better than life. He's glorified in the exaltation of the sun, as the sun is lifted up on the cross. You know, the wording here, we can't get into it much, but the, the wording here is that when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, that's when his exaltation begins. The cross, the place of defeat, becomes his throne. And when he's lifted up, then he can draw all people to himself. Do you see the glory of God displayed by Jesus in his willing death for you? Do you sense the weight and the gravity there? If that's true, then you're in terrible shape without Jesus. If you haven't come to him, if you haven't been drawn by the weight of his glory, then you are still in the first part of that gospel 
you're far worse off than you ever dared to dream. But I'm just here pleading. I wish I had more tongues to plead. I wish I had more time. I wish I had more eloquence. I wish I had more ability to get across to you to say, but yet in Christ, you don't have to stay there. Because if, that, if what is Jesus is saying here is true, then you have a greater love poured out for you and on you than you have ever known. If it is true, then you have access to true help and true healing. You have a promise that extends beyond the grave to life. So here's the way to know if you know God. Do you have, is the greatest force at work in your life, the great thing that's affecting the rest of your life, the glory of God? Is he pulling every part of your life and personality to himself? Is he displacing all that you once found sure and comfortable? Is the weight of his glory pulling you to places and to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do? We see that in Jesus here. Death and punishment were repulsive to him, yet something was more attractive, something was weightier. It it pulled him like a whirlpool, and not by some external pressure. It was an inner drive and desire to see the Father glorified. The Father's glory was more attractive than the repulsion of death and separation. And that's the measure of whether you truly know God or not. Whether there is another drive and desire at work within you, one that runs even counter to your own instinct and proclivity that is an overriding passion. Now that's not something that you work up. It's not something that you grit your teeth while doing. It's a greater drive within you. Because you've seen the glory of God. We're told that Jesus proceeded because of the joy set before him. He believed in a greater joy. He believed, even though his mind was troubled, that God's glory was his good. Do you believe that? Where are you buying into another lie? A different story that says something other than God's glory is your greatest good. The only thing that can overcome that is by looking at the greater glory of God. The answer is to try to figure out what would my life look like if I saw God's glory and it displaced everything else in my life. The answer is to look to the glory and let that displace everything else in your life. Wrap up with this. We have a, a trampoline in our backyard. And it's funny to watch a grown man get on a trampoline with a little kid. Uh, the greater weight causes displacement, and it kind of draws the kid into the adult. Uh, one time, I can't rem- recall which kid it was, but, uh, and I don't remember where we were, what we were doing, but we had a, there was a, an air mattress, and uh, like one of our, our kids were, were small, and they were sitting on the edge, and you guys can see this coming. I went and sat down beside them and launched that kid like a cannon, like, boom, like off the mat. Like, I, they cleared the air. They cleared like three or four feet, boom, hit the ground. And they were okay, so now it's funny. And uh, 
What we're saying is, that's the kind of effect that Jesus' death should have upon us. It displaces things. It rearranges things. When you see Christ and the glory shown on the cross, there's a gravity that pulls you in. There's a displacement that pushes other things out. All of a sudden you see, this is not just a part of my life, or even a big part of my life. You say, this is not only, again, the central thing in my life, but when you see it, you say, this is my life. And that alone is Christianity. And if you follow anything else, it's simply empty religion. Christ glorified the Father by showing us his nature and character on the cross. You know what that means? That means your response to the death of Jesus determines the course of your life. Those that aren't drawn to Jesus because of the glory of his cross, you're under the rule of another. You're under the rule and reign of the one Jesus called the ruler of this world. And you're still under the threat of death. Or you're under the rule and reign of Christ. And he's just not a big part of your life. He is your life. And he's conquered death for you and gives you life. And one final application. The thing, Jesus tells us, that will attract people to God is, is Jesus and his death on the cross. There is no other way. There's no other formula. There's no other strategy. If you want to be freed from the rule of death upon you, it is through the cross of Jesus. If you're a Christian who wants to grow, it's through the cross of Jesus. If you're a Christian who is dry, it is through the cross of Jesus that you'll be refreshed. If you want to reach those people who are far from God and lost, it is only through the message of the cross of Jesus. If you want to grow a church in God's way, it is only through the cross of Jesus. We look around and we see Christianity suffering in our culture. We see values shifting around us. And how are we to resp respond? Is the answer in a political movement or a culture war? Is it in building more palatable worship services and attractive church buildings and programs? Jesus gives us the plan right here. The only thing that will attract people to God is the message of the bloody, terrible, glorious, beautiful, excellent cross and the Savior who died there. And he said, if you proclaim that, that's what he's saying here, I will draw all kinds of people to myself, and he's done it 
for 2,000 years, and he will do it today, no matter what cultural climate we live in, no matter how hard the people around you look to be, no matter how uninterested they appear to be in religious things or church or otherwise, he says, this will show my glory. and It will create a weight that will draw people in, draw them to myself, and it will be what unites my people together. Do you see the glorious cross of Christ? Do you see the glorious Savior? Do you see the beauty in Jesus Christ? If you're here today, you're still in the camp of darkness and sin and death. If you're still trying to muddle around, trying to control your own life, Jesus offers this message to you but yet in Christ. There's nothing that stands between you and him. There's no requirement that says, hey, get better and come to me. Clean up and come to me. Stop doing drugs and come to me. Stop sleeping around and come to me. Be more respectable to the people around you and come to me. Look more like the other people in this room and come to me. He says, no, simply come to me. I offer you free grace. I'll take it. And I'll be your God, and you'll be my son or daughter, and I'll be with you, and I'll be in you. The only thing that you have to do is believe in him. Put your full trust in him. Turn from your sin and bow your knee to him as Lord and King. If you're a Christian here today, maybe God's been speaking to you something as we've been talking I just encourage you to respond to him. Maybe he's hugging at your heart about something. You need a, some sort of sin or some sort of mindset or some sort of stranglehold that the enemy, the ruler of this world has had on your life. Maybe it's a call to follow him in a mission. And maybe it's a call to follow him in obedience that you haven't been following him. Today, respond. What we're going to do is if you're not a Christian and you would like somebody to pray with you, we're going to have some people back in the prayer area I'll be up front on this front row. I would love to pray with you. If you are a believer, what we're going to have is two stations, one on either side, the bread and the juice. You'll line up on the outside, come through, receive the broken body of Christ, broken for you, and the shed blood of Christ, shed for you, and return back to your seat. And then Ty will come up and lead us together in communion. Use that time to respond to Christ. Maybe he's calling you something else. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to respond where you are. Just respond to him. I would just encourage you. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your glory that's shown in Jesus Christ in his death. God, we thank you for what it shows about you. But God, we thank you that beyond all hope and beyond all measure, what it speaks to us. Father, help us to respond in the ways that you're calling us. I pray that you would make real to the hearts of all of us who are in this room the glory and the beauty that's found in the face of Jesus Christ and his death for us. As his name and for our good, we pray. Amen.